Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning everybody and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is Kim Doyle. Hi everyone. And myself, Chris Gaffney. John Lafferty is not with us this week. He will be back next week. Well, uh, last week we had the ALP conference, uh, the Alternative Government and uh, the... Heroes of the Working Class. The Heroes of the Working Class, as we all know. Well, last week's conference was a stage-managed exercise to try and rescue the fortunes of Bill Shorten, their leader, whose approval in the opinion poll stands at a fabulous 12%. Now, there was uh, several sham debates, notably over Shorten's insistence on military really, the military repelling refugee boats. Nevertheless, the conference un- unanimously endorsed the agenda of making Australia a base for US war plans against China, imposing hard austerity measures on the working class and bolstering the police state powers of the security and the intelligence apparatus. Labor's last conference was in December 2011, propped up the then leadership of uh, Julia Gillard. This was just weeks after a visit by uh, Barack Obama, the US President, and that conference reinforced the Labor government's unconditional commitment to Washington's military and strategic pivot to Asia, to confront and encircle China. Four years long, four years on, the uh, 2015 conference was an even more blatant operation to salvage the position of Shorten, an openly right-wing, US-backed and trade union-based power broker. Shorten played a pivotal role in the mid-2010 backroom removal of Kevin Rudd, who, and Rudd's crime, of course, was that he attempted to convince Washington to reach an accommodation with China. Australian capitalism's biggest export parties. Shorten took the unprecedented stamp of opening every session with a lengthy leader's address. Uh, Shorten's declaration on the eve of the conference that the Labor government would continue the Abbott government's use of naval vessels to turn back and or tow back asylum seeker boats, a regime, we might add, that blatantly flouts international law as well as the democratic right to seek asylum. This announcement preempted the conference, sending a wider signal of Shorten's intent to deliver whatever policy the corporate elite demanded, no matter how brutal. Um, the so-called left wing of the Labour Party, who was said to have had the numbers of the conference, faded, faded in, in the face of Shorten's uh, tactics. They allowed uh, Shorten to determine party policy. Despite several theatrical speeches of opposition to repelling refugees, journalists were informed in advance that a left-wing amendment nominally rejecting the practice would be defeated after a token show of hands. So the left never had any intention of fighting this at the time. The leader of the, uh, the left, Tanya Plibersek, adopted three positions in a matter of days. Firstly, she accepted Shorten's stand in the shadow cabinet. Then she spoke against it in the left caucus, but ultimately she refused to publicly cast a vote for the left amendment at the conference. The left amendment only criticised boat turnbacks, 
Why? On the tactical basis that they, quote, undermine cooperation with Asian governments to block the departure of the vote. So no fundamental. It's shameful, beyond belief. At a protest outside the conference, some groups did their best to keep illusions alive that the ALP could be pressured to adopt a more humane policy. And I don't understand where these people are coming from. They're disgusted with the Labour Party and so they want to protest. My argument was that this is giving some credibility that the Labour Party was capable of reaching a decent policy. In reality, Labour pioneered the anti-refugee policy under the Hawke and Keating governments of the 80s and the 90s, which introduced the inhumane mandatory detention regime of, in- of incarcerating all asylum seekers in an effort to stop both arrivals, and it's been matched and outdone by the Liberal government since. There was a further showpiece debate on same-sex marriage, ending with Shorten, Plibersek and anti-Albanese, another left leader, in a display of unity on the stage. They celebrated a compromise, whereas Plibersek and the left dropped calls to bind Labour MPs to vote for this elementary democratic right. Buried in all the media coverage was the adoption, without any dissent, of a foreign policy and a security platform that repeatedly hails the USA as Australia's closest, quote, endearing, quote, and essential, quote, ally. Building on the Gillard government stationing of US Marines in Northern Australia, the platform specifically commits Labor to making available to US forces whatever further facilities, ports, or airfields that Washington requires. In line with this commitment, the platform pledges to boost the resources of the Defence Forces, security agents, police and emergency services, quote, to meet, quote, the security challenges we face as a nation, end of quote. Chris Bowen sponsored an amendment to back the Abbott government's frontline involvement in Iraq and Syria. Watching over these proceedings, but shielded from public view, were more than a hundred banking and other corporate executives whose company paid $10,000 a head to lobby and consult with Labour and trade union leaders, netting the ALP about a million bucks. This, quote, business observers program, as it's called, a feature of ALP conferences since the 1980s, epitomises Labour's role as a thoroughly corporate identity. Throughout the conference, Shorten appealed for the support of big business, emphasising Labor's capacity, in partnership with the trade unions, to enforce, quote, hard economics, that is, a tax on the working class. The truth is that Shorten, back to the hill by the left by, and the trade unions, is seeking to convince the financial and corporate elites that he and Labor are a much more reliable vehicle for driving down working class living standards amid a deepening global economic crisis while preparing for war and depression at the same time. And there was no reason at that conference to think that would be other than the result. Mm. Um, I was at the protest and I think I know uh, people were talking about they have stalls, don't they, for different, I suppose, lobby groups inside the convention centre. I think this is what you were referring to with the... Well, I assume so. I never... Don't uh, go. <laughs> well, apparently also um, they put the pro-Israeli and the pro-Palestine stalls together, which was pretty horrific thing to mm-hmm. do. Um, as well, I think that it's good that people will protest the Labor Party under a coalition government. I think that's 
trying to set a good precedent for when, well, if Labor wins the election. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, I, it does tend to assume that you can push the Labor Party to the left, and I've never yet to see that work. Well, I don't think that you could push them to the left, but if protests were big enough, I think you could force them to change some of their policies, but you could say the same with the Liberal Party as well. If the protests were big enough, you could force them to change some of their policies. Well, yes, although the gay marriage thing doesn't seem to work with the Abbott government. I mean, clearly a majority support gay marriage, but uh, mm. Abbott and company are not having any part of it. Yeah, I think as as well, the well, the protests have uh, kind of, surprisingly, they diminished a bit under Tony Abbott. I think people... It kind of had the effect of this guy is such a reactionary and it just kind of demoralised people a bit. And then it started to seem inevitable because it was happening everywhere else. But obviously it's not, which is why we have to keep protesting. Right, right, right. Well, we protest not, I think, to influence the ALP, but to expose the ALP. I think that's Mm. the only reason for for possibly... Anyway, well, you're going to talk about the Greek events, I think, weren't you, Kim? Yeah, um, Greece is still in turmoil. And after five years of being dependent on loans from European states, the European Central Bank and the IMF, um, it's in a in severe economic depression, as people know, um, and has been forced um, into adopting austerity policies. Uh, Syriza, uh, which is led by uh, Prime Minister Alex, uh, Alexis Tsipras, promised to wind back this devastating austerity, which has left some 30% of the population in poverty. But after calling a referendum on July 5th, where 61% of people um, opposed the creditors' demands of more austerity, uh, the Syriza leadership has buckled um, and has accepted a deal that is even worse than the one that was re- that was rejected a by the Greek shameful betrayal. People. Yes. So the Greek working class has been left in a state of shocked disbelief. Uh, But the radical left, both within and outside Syriza, has begun to organise. So a general strike of public sector workers was called by the Federation of Public Sector Unions for July 15th, Mm -hmm. which was the same day that the Hellenic Parliament voted on the agreement. And Cyprus was forced to rely on the votes of the discredited pro-austerity parties as uh, 39 Syriza MPs voted against the deal or abstained. So the battle continues within the party. The European leaders see the strangulation of Greece as key to their future. So the European Council President, Donald Tusk, in the Financial Times on the 18th of July, revealed what the ruling class really fears if there are any concessions to Syriza, and they fear that it would galvanise the left opposition, not just in Greece but in other countries. Mm -hmm. And he said... I am really afraid of this ideological or political contagion, not financial contagion of this Greek crisis. And he went on to say, uh, the fibril rhetoric from the far-left leaders, coupled with high youth unemployment in several countries, could be an explosive combination. For me, the atmosphere is a little similar to the time after 1968 in Europe. I can feel, maybe not a revolutionary mood, but something like widespread impatience, when impatience becomes not an individual but a social experience of feeling, this is the introduction for revolutions. So there's some interesting analysis going on from yes, the other It's quite exciting, actually, yeah. isn't it? The creditors hope to make an example of Syriza to show that even if you elect an anti-austerity government, you will fail. 
They hope that by punishing the Greek population, that workers across the continent will get the message that there is no alternative to a neoliberal Europe. Yet there is also the possibility that they themselves are undermining the integrity of the European project. Their strategy runs the risk that people, when you completely back them into a corner, may not just become demoralised, they might actually fight back. Well, exactly. We hope. Yeah. In the local uh, Greek press, the attacks on the left platform within Syriza and the Syriza MPs who voted against the bailout have become absolutely hysterical. Uh, since the vote, uh, since the vote on July fifteenth, and Cyprus um, is lauded for his maturity and sense of responsibility. Oh well, yes, yes. <laughs> so the message is, is that uh, governing should be left to, to the adults. We've all heard that before. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the right wingers, they mean. The right wingers, exactly. Yeah. Um, the left platform members who voted against the memorandum have been removed from their ministries. Parliamentary Speaker um, Zoe Constantinopoulos, who cannot be removed because she's meant to have an independent position, has been asked to resign by Cyprus. But what has provoked the most outrage from the party membership is Cyprus' refusal to convene a central committee meeting because the majority of the central committee are actually against the new memorandum. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so... In fact, they signed a statement strongly condemning the bailout. So it's in Cyprus's interest to delay any meeting for as long as possible. Right, right. So this, I suppose this is a, a question of democracy within the party as well. Uh, so fresh elections are being held off until the situation has apparently been stabilised, um, which is just a way of not having to confront the left within the party. It, it does expose also the so-called parliamentary road to socialism. Exactly. Which is nonsense. Exactly. So the left is accused of trying to split the party and bring down the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, this has been quite a, an effective line of argument. Um, and that was the basis of Cyprus's uh, appeal to representatives in the parliamentary vote on the 15th of July. So um, Syriza MP uh, from the Red Network, which um, is one of the two factions within the left platform on Syriza, uh, they noted that opposition within the parliamentary group is broader than has been indicated by the vote. So there were a lot of people who were against the New Deal but didn't vote because they were afraid of splitting the party. Mm-hmm. A second line of attack has been that the left platform has no alternative plan um, and, if they, and then if it does, that it should have presented it earlier when in fact the left platform has a well-publicised plan the Thenalosiki program, which was formula- formulated last year in Greece's second largest city, and it was the basis of the, part- of the party's um, victory in the January 25th elections. So it does have a plan, one that is supported by the vast majority of the population. So the difference between the right um, slash centre of the party and the left is on the question of how the program should be implemented. And here the centre... Uh, faction of the party um, around Cyprus insisted that this can be achieved by appealing to a Europe of democracy and fairness, which has just been proven not to actually exist. (laughs) So the refusal to formulate or even consider an alternative when the creditors refused to budge was actually what was the fatal mistake. And it's actually Cyprus who doesn't have a plan, not uh, the left platform. And um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Sorry, go go. on, go on. Sorry. Uh, These arguments are now 
the arguments are now between those who view a government of the left as one part of a strategy to end austerity and those who view it as an end in itself. So I think that's what you're talking about, the the fallacy of the parliamentary road. Mm-hmm. And all the right can do is appeal to pragmatism. And the problem with such pragmatism is that it's about preserving the current balance of forces, yes. of class forces. Yes. Um, and what you actually need is to push forward the working class forces. Um, and I think this is, a, this is a question of power and class power, is that the, the ruling class always appears more powerful um, until you actually mobilise the working class. So you can't assess the class forces as they appear. You have to mobilise Unless the left is fighting. Exactly. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. Good point, good point. Um, well, that's interesting you say that because in talking about the, the, this, the crisis of the, of the Greeks, uh, I read an article the other day about how German corporations are going to wildly profit from Greece's situation, including, including the fact that they're going to be buying up to half the Greek ports. It's just a fire sale of Greek assets. They know that they will never pay back the debt. That's not what this is about. No, 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 it's not. And the second point about it is, of course, is saying to the European working class, don't revolt, it won't work. Mm. And that's clearly wrong. Um, But it's a message that they want to keep pushing out. But also of interest is the situation of Argentina. Because in Argentina, the fight with foreign banks and bondholders, the same fight the Greek people are having, well, it's part of the national psyche, this fight back against the the creditors, which is enshrined in a special museum. There's a special museum in Argentina at the University of Buenos Aires, the so-called Museum of Foreign Debt. You might think I'm making this up, but I'm not. Sounds fabulous. It does. Um... The saga is portrayed on the panels in this museum. Bankers, bond investors and the IMF flood crooked regimes with overpriced credit. The Argentinian economy collapses and the people suffer. International markets are roiled. It happens time and time again. The story has all the good emotions of a tango. Argentina's reneged on its foreign debt obligations at least seven times, starting in 1827. The latest was last year in July 2014 when Argentina defaulted rather than to give in to pressure from the Paul Singer of Elliott Management. The fight with this character Singer has been going on for a dozen years and the term vulture investor, rather a quaint term for the rest of the world, is pretty well, pretty well universally known in Argentina. It's so much on people's mind that Buenos Aires toy stores carry a homegrown board game called Vultures, packaged in a box <laughs> depicting a pair of birds fly picking at a pile of dollars. We planted the anti-vulture flag in the world, the President of Argentina says. We gave a name to international usury and despotism. The Greeks should be listening to this. Today's Argentina, uh, this is, uh, I'm quoting here, a 21-year-old business major, Uh, She's talking about Argentina's attitudes to default. She says, Argentina has no moral obligation to make good on debts like these. In fact, it would be wrong to pay. Most of their debts were built up by dictators attempting to suppress the left. 
Foreigners financed a lot of leaders, like these dictators. They didn't do what what they were supposed to do with the money, and they left future generations the debt. So, of course, we cannot allow that. Mm. Well said. Uh, The president is nearing the end of her term, and it doesn't look like things will change after the next president also vows to carry on the same fight against paying the vultures, as they're all universally known in, in full. The museum seeks to contribute towards the development of a historical memory and in the same breath strengthen the investigation and promotion of such a phenomenon as well as its impact upon Argentinian society. We can resist Argentine shows. We can resist these vulture creditors and get away with it. Mm. And uh, that's what, of course, the bourgeoisie of Western Europe are terrified that the workers will realise we don't have to pay this. We can tell them to go bite their bottoms. because exactly. <laughs> Or something a little harsh. <laughs> or, <laughs> or something a, a bit more devastating. But uh, So it shows that we, you know, as you said before, and I agree, the, the, the state always looks super powerful. It looks like how we ever get... You hear people say in this country, oh, how, they've got spies everywhere. Uh, they've got spies everywhere. What can we do? They've got the media. They've, they've got, got the media and that... You challenge them, see how long that, that dominance lasts. I think, we are many, they are few. Exactly. And I think as well, I'd like the idea of the museum because I've often wondered what a museum to capitalism would look like under socialism. <laughs> I think that one thing they'll have in there is um, Mikey cards. I always think that when I'm taking public transport. Oh, do you right? It's like, you know how they have the the gates that you have to go through and you yeah, feel like yeah. you're in a sheep pen. I feel like people will look back and they'll say, what the hell was that? It'll be in a museum somewhere. Yes, 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 yes. Of course it will. Of course it will. Uh, well, I think some of the lessons really that uh, of how we Marxists approach things is shown really by... Uh, uh, Showing very much by the attitude to the Greeks. We, in on this program, said that Teresa would sell out because we looked at the writings of the leader who described himself as an ex-Marxist, and therein lay the problem. So we said the Teresa government will sell out. Now, this wasn't a particularly popular uh, program at the time, but it proved to be absolutely, absolutely correct. Uh, because pe- because what Marxism does is look at people's interests, not what they say, but where their interests lie and how they are pursuing that interest. And uh, so uh, people who oppose this oppose class struggle. We start primarily from the basis that the interests of the two classes are irreconcilable and that any thought of cooperating with them or forming an accord with them like the uh, Labourites did in government in the 80s and 90s, can only be to the disadvantage of the working class because the two classes, the capitalist class and the working class, have completely hostile interests. More profit, less wages. More wages, less profit. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I think as well a lot of people think, oh, be reasonable, make some compromises with uh, European institutions. But what that's actually shown is that no, that's not the way it, work. it works. It's about class because you see the Europeans are not at all interested in coming to a compromise. They want to, they have their class interests and they want to smash and humiliate the left. Absolutely. And that's exactly what they've 
done. First in Greece and then anywhere anywhere throughout the universe, uh, Europe, if the work class sticks its head up, we'll say, look what we did to Greece. And we got, and look what, did they resist? No, they couldn't. If the Greeks, if the Greeks <laughs> took up the challenge today and resisted, we'd be talking about a different Europe. Yeah. The other little thing before we get on to that is, of course, the business, uh, which is less, somewhat less important, but... Well, it is and it isn't. Is the is the attitude of the champion footballer um, Adam Goods? Is that his name? Is it? yes. Yeah. Adam Goods. I mean, I'm I don't know or care about. He football. used to play for Collingwood, so that's why I know him. <laughs> oh, is that oh, right? Okay, okay. Uh, well, I didn't know that, so that's news to me. that's news to me. But it was suggested on uh, Joe Toscano's program, and I thought it was a good suggestion that if the crowd boos Adam Goodies, which is outright unmistakable racism, mm. the players should walk off. The players should walk off. That will tell the VFL, you've got to do something about this, otherwise no profits, fellas. Mm. It hasn't been the VFL since 1990, but I know it's oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're making me sound knowledgeable about football. Oh, well, that's all. <laughs> well, yes, well, I, I must say I know nothing. Apparently but, Richmond, though, has said that they will wear their um, Indigenous um, Yeah, That was a, that was a, a, good, a good thing, and I, but I think, I think the players themselves should say, are we going to allow one of our members to be denigrated because of their race, mm. uh, that if they stood up and said, it's not on, no no racism, otherwise no game. Yeah, that would be fabulous. That would uh, get the a- AFL doing something actual real instead of the tokenism they go on to. The other thing about is opposition to Marxism is there's been a tendency, of course, to focus on identity politics, whereas I think what... The growing class crisis in capitalism is coming back again and again and again that the major division in society is based on class. And that really, in a way, ethnicity, race, gender and sexuality, while important, you know, should not be allowed to obscure the, the basic questions of caste. They're not a substitute for the fact that we as a working class we act as the work. We demand marriage equality because we are for the working class. Yes, it's not a supra class issue. It's not only we don't go for issues that all classes can have a say on what would be nice. We relentlessly pursue working class interests. Well, you see the way that uh, the genocide and dispossession of the Aboriginal people has so strengthened and emboldened capitalism in Australia, which is completely to the detriment of. The working class, yes, obviously. That's right. That's right. Well, we might remember the in the Northern Territory when uh, the Howard government intervened. Hmm? Oh, sorry. Yes. Let, yes. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. You. Go. Yeah. Uh, you, sorry, I, I just sorry, I rudely forgot. interrupted. No, but no, um, do, I wanted do, to go. say a little bit about um, Palestine, please, uh, because I don't know if if people have heard, but an entire Palestinian Palestinian village that um, actually received Australian aid money. Uh, to help improve the living conditions um, is in Palestine is actually facing demolition by Israeli authorities. Um, so the Australian NGO Action Aid um, established programs supporting women um, buying sheep and beehives and has constructed buildings which um, have been used as a medical clinic and a kindergarten. Um, but that is now under threat. 
So uh, village elder um, Abdu Muhammad, who was born and raised in the village, which um, is called uh, Sasiya, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, um, he thanked the Australian government, but he said... It may all amount to nothing after the Israeli authorities determined that planning permission was never given for the village. So you need planning permission for your own homeland, apparently. Yes. Um, it was never, but the planning was never given, um, and they have granted a demolition order for the whole of the village. And this is um, what. And presumably, the new village would be, be populated by Jews. Settlers. Yeah, settlers. Settlers. Uh, they will confiscate this land for settlers. Uh, this is what um, uh, Muhammad's saying, uh, so that they can expand their settlements and live comfortably. And they want to destroy us, our lives, and our kids' lives. So the man leading the campaign um, is actually Sydney born, Australian man. Um, well, leading the campaign to save the village or to destroy it? To destroy it? Yeah. Right. Ari Briggs, um, who has lived in Israel for the past 22 years. So um, he is the spokesperson for an Israeli pro-settler organisation um, and he said, what you are looking at when you look at Arab um, Sasiya today is a collection of tents, an encampment that has been set up there. And he said, under no one's definition could it be called a village. I mean, this is what they do is that they keep Palestinian people impoverished and then they say that they don't actually live there and that they have no buildings and that they're not settled there. But it's a... Um, conscious policy. Bizarre argument, yes. really. And he claims that um, that there is an inextricable link um, between what happened thousands of years ago and what should happen now in this in the um, village. Um, and he said, and this is a quote, just to relate it to Australia. You know Uluru. If graziers came and grazed on Uluru and decided to set up an encampment to be closer to those grazing fields, I believe that um, the tribe would have felt that this is wrong. So I think it's really outrageous that he's using the example of the indigenous people of Australia yes. when the Palestinians are the indigenous people. Yes, that's right. Um, that's and right. actually the um, connection between um, Australia and Israel, I think, is that both are actually white settler colonies. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. That's right. That's right. That's why Aborigines to a person support the democratic right of the Palestinians. Yeah, exactly. For, for that very reason. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.